This is chapter 13, the last on the uh, Dhammanupasana, and this is uh, on the Four Noble Truths. The instructions for the final exercise among the Satipatthana contemplations are He knows as it really is, this is dukkha. He knows as it really is, this is the arising of dukkha. He knows as it really is, this is the cessation of dukkha. He knows as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. According to more detailed expositions found in other discourses, the first of the Four Noble Truths relates dukkha to physical events such as disease and death, and to the mental displeasure that arises from being unable to satisfy desires and wishes. So, for example, the Dhammachaka Sutta that we recite uh, very regularly, um, and also as part of the uh, uh, the morning chanting, the um, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair are dukkha, association with the disliked is dukkha, separation from the liked is dukkha, not getting what you want is dukkha. But, uh, it's familiar territory to, to most of us, uh, in terms of the words, so that's the Dhammachaka uh, Sutta, also many other places in the discourses. As the first noble truth points out, all these forms of dukkha can, in the final analysis, be traced to the basic fivefold clinging to existence by way of the aggregates. Uh, so that's uh, in the phrase Panchupadana Kantha Dukkha, the, the five. Uh, focuses of identity or the five uh, aggregates, the five uh, the areas upon which the mind grasps, uh, that is the um, uh, <coughs> that is uh, the kind of embodiment of dukkha. Panchupadana kantha dukkha. Although the Buddha placed much emphasis on dukkha, this does not mean that his analysis of reality was concerned only with the negative aspects of existence. In fact, an understanding of dukkha and its arising leads to the third and fourth noble truths, which are concerned with the positive values of freedom from dukkha and the practical path leading to that freedom. As the Buddha himself expressly stated, a realization of the four noble truths will be accompanied by happiness, and the noble eightfold path is a path productive of joy. This shows that understanding dukkha is not necessarily a matter of frustration and despair. And so this is a good point because often it gets quoted as saying, "Oh, the Buddha said everything is suffering, or that you know life is life is suffering," and that's a very um, sort of common uh, rendering or, or a way of, uh, of speaking. But uh, uh, it's one of those times where it's um, it's more helpful to to quote the Buddha accurately rather than just sort of what gets put onto a sticker on the on the fridge or gets quoted in some kind of. Um, self-help book you know the, the buddha didn't say uh, that um that life is suffering you know the buddha said the, there is suffering or you know all compounded things are unsatisfactory and so that there there he did make statements of that nature but it's helpful to understand it's not just a, a sour or negative outlook on life and particularly uh, it can be misinterpreted in that way either um by uh, poorly informed Buddhists or by um, poorly informed non-Buddhists. <laughs> so 
So it, it's not a, a, a negative or sour approach to life, it's, but it's rather, and Venerable Analio goes into the medical model later on, it's rather like saying, yeah, well, there is illness in the world. Bodies get sick. If they, uh, how many doctors have we got here? Yeah. If there weren't, if bodies didn't get sick, we wouldn't have doctors. Yeah. Who are the hospitals for? They're for the humans. You know, it's because bodies get sick that we need hospitals, we need doctors, we need medicine. Um, if you go through life saying there is no sickness, good luck. You know, <laughs> uh, but that's it's a it's a totally common sense recognition that yeah, bodies don't work perfectly well all the time and there's things that you can do to help them to work more effectively more comfortably and more efficiently so therefore doctors therefore hospitals and uh, so that the uh, recognition of you know, there is dukkha idang dukkang there is dukkha is a recognition that yeah that we don't feel totally happy all of the time we're not in a state of unremitting bliss from the big, uh, from the moment of waking to the moment of of going to sleep would anyone disagree? <laughs> so that's where the, the, the Buddha... And it, when the, the Buddha was teaching the Four Noble Truths, it was after... Uh, this is a, a point that the Lumpur Sumedha would often make, that the, fir- the, uh, the Buddha's first Dharma teaching was a failure when he, uh, he met the ascetic Upaka on the road to, um, to uh, Varanasi, and uh, Upaka was very uh, impressed by the, uh, the Buddha's demeanor, so he was... His, Extraordinarily radiant and peaceful, and 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 said, so, "Well, friend, you look so amazing. Your your expression is so so clear and so bright. You must have had some kind of great realization, some sort of awakening. And you know, you know is that the case? And if so, you know, who's your teacher? What is it that you've awakened to?" And the Buddha said, "Yes, it's true. I have awakened. I have uh, I've realized the deathless. And no, I don't have a teacher. I've awakened to this myself." And so then Upaka says, so you're claiming to be totally enlightened? You've, you've, uh, you've realized the deathless? And the Buddha says, yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and I'm off to Varanasi to beat the drum of deathlessness. And then because he just sort of makes this declaration of, yeah, I, uh, I've uh, totally awakened, and that's the truth, um, then Upaka says, well, good for you, friend. And uh, shaking his head, he goes off by a different track, just like when you meet the sort of glassy-eyed uh, inspired religious devotee in the supermarket or you know, on the street says, let me tell you all about the Dharma <laughs> okay thank you thank you can I, can, can I go now I need to you know, buy a loaf of bread and a bottle of milk and go home so no 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 wait 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 I haven't finished so that uh, that kind of um, uh, fear that uh, this was uh, this um, bright being was a sort of uh, uh, having some sort of uh, mental episode and was deluding himself about his state of enlightenment. So Parker didn't accept that, uh, that sort of declaration of, of enlightenment of the Buddha, and just said, okay, well, good for you, friend, and, and took off. So what became of Upaka, I, I do not know, but maybe it's, maybe it's me. <laughs> it has reappeared in later ages. Um, so that, uh, rather than that coming from that declarative position of, this is the truth, and I've awakened to it. Um, the uh, uh, and you know you should believe me. The the Buddha started from a, a, a diff- the uh, a different uh, end of the scale and said, rather than um, there is the ultimate reality, and I've awakened to it, um, and, he, and you should believe me. It's like he started off by saying, well, uh, 
yeah, there is dukkha, as if to say, I, you know, if there is an ultimate reality, why are we not blissfully happy all of the time? If there is an ultimate truth, if there is that, if that's the case, how come? If that's the fundamental nature of of, of our, our mind, our being, and of all beings, why aren't we blissfully happy all of the time? Yeah. And so that uh, he approaches the the issue from a, an, an an analytical perspective right? and say, okay, well, there there is dukkha. Now, why is that? Yeah. If there is the tr- if there is this, the truth, and that is a fundamental reality, why are we not blissfully happy? And so then he um, points to the dukkha and the causes of dukkha. The, the uh, spiritual ailment and its causes, and then the the treatment and the uh, prognosis. Dukkha is often translated as suffering, quote unquote. Suffering, however, represents only one aspect of dukkha, a term whose range of implications is difficult to capture with a single English word. Dukkha can be derived from the Sanskrit ka. K-H-A, one meaning of which is the axle hole of a wheel, so the center of a, of a wheel, the hub of a wheel where the axle goes through. And the antithetic prefix, prefix du or dus, which stands for difficulty or badness. So it's dus or du ka. The complete term then evokes the image of an axle not fitting properly into the hole in the wheel. So the, a, a wheel and, you know, that's out of kilter, although the, it's not um, properly balanced on its axle. And the, um, the Pali uh, of, of those, uh, du means difficulty or badness, and akka, A-K-K-H-A, is the axle of a wheel. So the English word axle and akka uh, um, probably very uh, closely connected. So the, the easy image to bear in mind is like when you're at the supermarket and you've got the trolley with the, with the wonky wheel and you keep kind of finding yourself driving into the, into the, the bread bins or to the uh, other person in the, in the aisle. And this is dukkha. <laughs> that uh, you have a, a wonky wheel and uh, that right there is frustration that the cart doesn't go the way you want to go because the wheel is out of, out of true. So it's a very uh, simple and accurate um, a representation of spiritual wrongness, spiritual um, thing that spiritual badness, that, that quality of things being out of out of true, not spinning true. According to this image, dukkha suggests disharmony or friction. Alternatively, dukkha can be related to the Sanskrit sta, s t h a, standing, or abiding. And like or the the Pali is titati to to stand. The Sanskrit has an s in front. St. And combined with the same antithetic prefix of du, dukkha in the sense of standing badly then conveys nuances of uneasiness or of being uncomfortable. <coughs> and uh, Venerable Nyanamoli, um, uh, uh, who was uh, an English Buddhist scholar, a monk in Sri Lanka back in the fifties and sixties. Um, he uh, suggested uneasiness as a preferable rendering, rendering for dukkha when this is used as a, a characteristic of the whole of experience. So uneasiness, things not, not, at, not at ease. In order to catch the various nuances of dukkha, the most convenient translation is unsatisfactoriness, though it might be best to leave the term untranslated. 
So uh, I, f I feel exactly the same. I usually use unsatisfactoriness as a way of rendering uh, dukkha. The need for careful translation of the term can be demonstrated with the help of a passage from the Nidana Sangita, where the Buddha stated that whatever is felt is included within dukkha. So that's the um, uh, connected discourses about causation. So it's section 12 of the uh, Sangita Nikaya. So whatever is felt is included within dukkha. To understand dukkha here as an affective quality and to take it as implying that all feelings are suffering, quote-unquote, conflicts with the Buddha's analysis of feelings into three mutually exclusive types, which are, in addition to unpleasant feeling, pleasant feeling, and neutral feelings. So if it was dukkha was only talking about the, the affective feeling of, of uh, suffering, then um, it couldn't both be um, pleasant feeling at the same time. That makes sense. <laughs> unpleasant feeling, right? <laughs> so on another occasion, the Buddha explained um, his earlier statement that whatever is felt is included within dukkha to refer to the impermanent nature of all conditioned phenomena. So there's also a, a, an analysis of uh, three different kinds of dukkha, what's called dukkha dukkha, which is painful feeling, um, also painful sensation, then viparinama dukkha, which is uh, the unsatisfactoriness caused by uh, the experience of change. So um, that the, the very, uh, uh, say, um, instability of things, so that if something is pleasant, then the fact that uh, you can't keep it, it can't... Uh, it can't uh, be maintained, it can't sustain itself forever, is, uh, is unsatisfactory. Even though the experience is pleasant, the, uh, the, um, the transiency of it, the instability of it, is the dukkha. That's called viparinama dukkha. So the, um, uh, the Japanese, uh, predictably, have a, a word that refers to the, um, uh, <coughs> the, the painfulness of beauty which is aware, it's, it's sort of transliterated like the English word aware, but pronounced aware. And that's, uh, so when something's beautiful, particularly like cherry blossom on the, the day, the moment when it's perfect, there's a painfulness because it can't stay. <laughs> it's, so there's a, as a that we viparinama dukkha is um, that very kind of uh, unownability, that instability. And then the third kind of dukkha is called uh, sankara dukkha, which is the unsatisfactoriness of the very um, and caused and dependent nature of all things, that uh, things are um, uh, unsatisfactory insofar as they are not just unstable, but also that they are, they are compounded and formed and, uh, and empty of, of essence. So, so there's a dukkha um, dukkha is the most coarse, and then viparinama dukkha is the uh, the um, dukkha arising from change, and then sankara dukkha is the the unsatisfactoriness in the, the basic formed nature of things. So that's the most refined kind of, uh, of dukkha. The changing nature of feelings, however, need not necessarily be experienced as suffering, since in the case of a painful experience, for example, changing like when changing your posture when you're uncomfortable, change is experienced as pleasant. Thus all feelings are not suffering, nor is their impermanence suffering, but all feelings are unsatisfactory, since none of them can provide lasting satisfaction. 
So, for example, when you're uncomfortable and you change your posture, there's a moment of relief. Ah, right? But that is three or four seconds of, of a consciously pleasant feeling, uh, but then you don't stay blissfully happy for the rest of your life. At least I don't. It's not the way it works. So that that, um, uh, that quality of dukkha as unsatisfactoriness is like, yes, there's a, a momentary relief, or, or yes, that there's a, a pleasant feeling, but it, it's not something that is uh, substantial or uh, a, a, in any way um, permanent. That is, dukkha as a qualification of all conditioned phenomena is not necessarily experienced as suffering, since suffering requires someone sufficiently attached in order to suffer. Okay, I'll say that again, since that was a, he kind of moves on to a bit of a different point there. Thus, all feelings are not suffering, nor is there impermanence suffering. But all feelings are unsatisfactory, since none of them can provide lasting satisfaction. That is, dukkha, as a qualification of all conditioned phenomena, is not necessarily experienced as suffering, since suffering requires someone sufficiently attached in order to suffer. So that, uh, and, he, and he goes on to that in a bit more detail um, in a later paragraph, because it's not as though the five khandhas in themselves are unsatisfactory. It's the attitude towards the five khandhas that creates the, the feeling of, of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. They are what they are. The five khandhas are just patterns of nature doing their thing. And it's the, and the quality of uh, attachments, the attitude of the experiencer that, uh, that, know, that sort of forms the world into body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. That's what uh, the, it's in the attitude that the dukkha is created. That uh, the four elements of the way that the world is uh, and such like is um, uh, dukkha doesn't really apply to that uh, uh, apart from the mind that's experiencing uh, experiencing them. Any questions? Yes. Mm. The Buddha was not attached anymore to his five karmas. I think he still describes his body as a problematic thing. His attitude was, I think, okay, but still the karma was not uh, completely free from dukkha, or am I mistaken? No, he said uh, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, when he's very old, he says, my body is like an old cart held together with strings and, and, and wires and straps. He says that the only way I can experience comfort is to completely absorb my mind into the sunyata vihara. So like, if he was paying attention to the sense world, he was in pain. The only way he could not experience pain was to completely dissociate his attention from the sense world. The sunyata vihara means like the abiding in emptiness. So, and he, but he mentions it quite casually, like, oh yeah, I'm old and my body is decrepit, so I experience pain all the time. <laughs> but he didn't suffer on account of it. So that the, like I was mentioning, the, the teaching of the two arrows, the, the first arrow is the experience of pain, that if you have a body and a mind, you're, you're going to experience painful feeling. Physical pain, emotional pain, is intrinsic in the system. It's not negotiable. Um, and the, 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 the suffering that is transcended by the noble truths is not the first arrow. The second arrow is negotiating, fretting, resenting, 
waiting for it to be over, uh, complaining, uh, criticizing, worrying. That's the second arrow. And the second arrow is completely avoidable. So that the ending of suffering is not the ending of pain, but it's the ending of the mind creating a problem out of it. Very different. Yeah, yeah. You're thinking that Parinibbana would be the total end of suffering. Yeah. And then there's no life karmas anymore. It's indescribable. One who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which has that which can be spoken of is no more. You cannot say they do not exist, but when all modes of being, all phenomena are removed, all means of speaking have gone too. That's the, the in the uh, Sutta Nipata, the teaching to Upasiva. Mm-hmm. And the two arrow sutta is that the sutta? Uh, the arrow is in the uh, connected discourses. I think it's in the um, I think it's in the connected discourses about the six senses, but I wouldn't swear to it. Just it's just called the arrow, the sala sala sutta s a double l a sala sutta. Okay, so the next section: four noble truths. That to suffer is due to some form of attachment, is in fact the implication of the second noble truth, according to which, in order for the unsatisfactory nature of phenomena in the world to lead to actual suffering, it's necessary for craving, tanha, to be present. As the third noble truth indicates, once all traces of attachment and craving have been eradicated by the arahant, such suffering is also eradicated. Thus, suffering, unlike unsatisfactoriness, is not inherent in the phenomena of the world, only in the way in which the unawakened mind experiences them. This is indeed the underlying theme of the Four Noble Truths as a whole. The suffering caused by attachment and craving can be overcome by awakening. For an arahant, the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena is no longer capable of causing suffering. So that's a really useful sentence. For an arahant, the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena is no longer capable of causing suffering. So the five khandas are as they are, body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, they are in a, as their, their natural state of change and, and, and unownability, um, but they can't cause suffering. And the, um, there's also a passage uh, from the uh, Agivacha Gotta Sutta, which is number 72 in the Majima Nikaya, which I like to reflect on a lot, which is um, that when the Buddha's talking about his own nature, he's having this dialogue with Vacha, Vachagota, where he gives this simile about fire, and Vachagota simile has been asking about what happens to an enlightened being at the, at the death of the body. And, the, <clears throat> and just like in the Buddha's teaching to Upasiva, uh, he says, um, he talk, talking about his, uh, the Tathagata, his, his own nature, he said, the Tathagata, um, let's see, how does it go? The, um, the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, Vacha. Uh, <clears throat> that by, uh, let's see, the, um, 
any material form whereby one trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him has been uh, has been abandoned, has been cut off at the root, has uh, uh, its means of existence have been destroyed and it's uh, prevented from arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, Vacha. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So too with feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. So any way of trying to describe the Buddha, or say, you know, this is what the awake mind is, it can't be described in terms of the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, or even consciousness. So that uh, the so the uh, if you like the internal experience of a, of the Buddha or the awake mind is completely, it can't be described or, or, or reckoned or measured in terms of the body, of feelings, perceptions, uh, mental formations, consciousness. So that uh, that um, it, it can uh, that mind is awake, it knows, but you can't uh, you can't name exactly. What it it is, or you can't use any of the five khandas to to describe that. So that the, um, for as it says, for an arahant, the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena is no longer capable of causing suffering. So when you, if you take that that particular teaching to to Vachagota, um, the uh, the the target has abandoned any material form by means of which one trying to describe him. Try to, to describe the Tathagata could describe him. So that if you say, well, the Buddha is six feet tall, well, <laughs> he's a, that's, you're trying to describe the Tathagata in terms of material form. Or the Tathagata is always joyful, you know, or the, you know, the Tathagata is wise. Say, yes, but the, from the Buddha's side, you know, the awake mind has abandoned uh, 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 the, uh, any material form, feeling, perceptions, consciousness by means of which one who is trying to describe him could describe him. So that you might describe the Buddha that way, but from the subjective experience, there's no identification with any of those qualities. Yeah. <clears throat> so he, uh, the, uh, uh, and then that that uh, description whereby it says um, he has cut it off at the uh, root, made it like a palm tree stump, rendered it incapable of arising in the future. So that then. The mind is so completely let go of identification with the body, the personality, with, with the thoughts and feelings, that um, and he kind of really underscores it. You know, it's cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. It's like no, let gone, ended, stopped, no connection. The bridge is broken. It's <laughs> there's no there's no uh, way of identifying, and then um, that uh, then is describing the. Uh, the kind of, if you like, the internal experience of the awake mind that there is, you know, the, the the world is there, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, but there's absolutely no identification. There's no, the mind does not uh, involve itself with with claiming ownership or identity with anything that's beginning and ending, any of the the changing qualities of the of the five khandas and sense world. So they're incapable. So therefore, the the five khandas are incapable of causing suffering because they're not self. They're not. They're not owned. And rather, or like to quote that Polish proverb, "Not my circus, not my monkeys." <laughs> Just the five khandas. That's all. You know. And uh, the uh, this uh, insight also was one of the the um, the, uh, the most profound things that Ajahn Chah. 
uh, got from his encounter with, with uh, Venerable Ajahn Man. When Ajahn Man spelled that out in, in a Dhamma talk, just during the very brief time that Ajahn Chah was with him, saying you know, the, mind, the mind that is aware is one thing and the five khandas are another, that they are intrinsically separate. If they were not, then liberation would be impossible because they are intrinsically separate. Then um, that's why liberation is possible. And so that was a, a, a kind of life-changing insight to, for, for Ajahn Chah. So just like in that, that statement of the Buddha, you know, the, 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 the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form. You, it's not, you, you, can't, uh, you can't find a connection. The, the mind that is fully awake is not uh, in the realm of, of birth and death. It's not tied to the five khandas. Therefore, liberation is possible. If it was tied to the five khandas, then liberation would be impossible. Does that make sense? Very good. So, the fourth noble truth then treats the conditions for such overcoming in detail. By depicting the practical way, magga or patibhada, practice, to be followed. This noble eightfold path covers the central activities and qualities to be cultivated in order to bring about the transformation from ignorant worldling, patujana, to arahant. Since in this context right mindfulness, samasati, is juxtaposed with other factors such as view, speech and action, the Noble Eightfold Path sets the necessary framework for a development of satipatthana. In other words, satipatthana becomes samasati, right mindfulness, only when and if it's undertaken independently with the other seven path factors. So that, that right mindfulness, uh, in the full development of that uh, right mindfulness, is, say, um, uh, in relationship to the other seven path factors, and so that they are all sort of developed together with uh, with the quality of mindfulness. There's also, um, in the sutta, in the middle-length discourses called the Great Forty, sutta 117, um, the Buddha, come, he, he uses this image um, saying that actually three qualities, right view, right mindfulness, and right effort, they, they circle around and support all the other factors of the path. So rather like the, the insulation around a, a, a wire, kind of a cable sort of wraps around it and insulates it and holds the, the, the cables together. <coughs> so right, right, uh, right view, samaditi, uh, right effort, samavayama, and right mindfulness, they, are, they have a particular role in supporting and protecting and um, coordinating the other factors of the path. So that um, as a, like a, a, a unique or a particular role that those three qualities have, the view, effort, and mindfulness are, the, are the, uh, what hold all the eight factors together in a coordinated way. The Four Noble Truths express the essence of the Buddha's awakening and form the central theme of what is recorded as his first formal discourse, the Dhamma-Chakapuatna Sutta. Since these four truths accord with reality, they are further qualified as noble, as the four noble truths, Arya Satcha. The underlying fourfold structure parallels a fourfold method of diagnosis and prescription used in ancient Indian medicine. Similar nuances occur in several discourses which compare the Buddha to a doctor and his teaching to medicine. This presentation underlines the pragmatic orientation of the Four Noble Truths as a practical investigation of reality. 
So the disease, the illness, is dukkha. It's like the spiritual malaise, the dukkha, that's the, the illness. Uh, the cause uh, is uh, tanha, craving, that's the, the, the cause of the illness. Uh, the, uh, the state of health is nibbana, um, or if you can say the prognosis, the third noble truth, is it curable? Uh, the, and the answer is yes, uh, dukkha niroda, the uh, suffering can be ended, uh, dukkha niroda. Satisfactoriness can be uh, 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 realized, so health is possible, nibbana. And then the treatment, the cure, is the Eightfold Path. So disease, cause, prognosis, treatment uh, as the, the, the fourfold model. And in the little note he says here, this was pointed out by uh, a Buddhist scholar, de la Vallée Poussin, back in 1903. Um, but a more recent scholar, uh, Wetzler, in 1984, pointed out uh, that there is, quote, there is no evidence for this scheme having predated the Buddha's formulation of the Four Noble Truths. Therefore, it's also possible that it was adopted from his teaching by the medical sciences. Parallels to the Four Noble Truths occur also in the Yoga Sutra by Patanjali, and uh, a detailed discussion of that can be found in Wetzler's book, uh, 1984. And, let's see, what was the name of that book? Uh, Wetzler. On the quadruple division of the Yoga Shastra uh, um, and the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. You can find that if you want to look that up. It's in Indologia Taurinensia. Probably findable online nowadays. But uh, that's a, uh, so that's a, an interesting point that it could actually have been because it was such a, a useful formula that the you know, med medical Ayurvedic practitioners of the Buddha's time said, okay, well, we can use that and put that to work. So whether they, uh, um, which one informed the other is, is uh, up for debate. But it's a helpful model because also it points to the pragmatic approach of the Buddha. So he's like a, a clinician. He's like a, 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 a doctor on the wards rather than a theoretician. You know, it's just sitting in, in the library theorizing. He is a clinician. It's like, okay, what actually fixes the, the malaise? What actually cures the, the illness? And so that it's a, um, in a way that the, the approach that he took with, with uh, Upaka was the sort of theoretician, just like, this is the truth, you know, from the statement. And um, that didn't help Upaka. So then he, he, uh, he uh, so took on this more uh, sort of uh, the clinician's approach of um, the Four Noble Truths of, okay, well, uh, if there's, in, uh, are we experiencing imbalance? Is the system out, out of true? If so, what's the cause of that? And, and is it, is it fixable? And that's also a, very much a, a, a cause of, of attraction and a practicality, the practicality of the teaching and, the, uh, and its, um, say, uh, tangibility, the fact that it's, it can be touched and seen and, and to be um, uh, tried out without any kind of uh, particular theoretical belief that it's a, that's one of the reasons why it's so significant or popular in the, the West, and particularly fits in with scientific materialism because it's a it's quite a scientific approach in in some respects. It's rather than being expected to believe uh, some uh, 
metaphysical principle like the the nature of the universe, where it all came from, or what is why, why we're all here, um, starts off with, well, are you totally happy all of the time? No? Okay, well, uh, let, let's look at that. Uh, so that it's a... Um, that's a, that pragmatic approach is uh, something that fits in very well with the skeptical materialist culture of uh, much of the of the West. Just as the footprints of all animals can fit within the footprint of an elephant, so too, whatever wholesome states there are, all of them are, are embraced by the Four Noble Truths. And that's a, a quote from the um, the discourse on the, the greater. Uh, the Greater Discourse on the Simile of the Elephant's Footprint, which is in the Majima. Oops. Um, Sutta number 28 of the Majima Nikaya. And then uh, he also says, On the other hand, to believe that one can realize awakening without having understood the Four Noble Truths is like trying to construct the upper floors of a house without having first constructed its lower floors and foundations. And that's a quote from um, one of the suttas in the um, Connected Discourses about the Truths, the Satya Sangyuta, uh, sutta number 44, in there if you want to look that up. Taken together, these statements underscore the central importance of the Four Noble Truths. Also, uh, as I mentioned a, a little while ago, it's, it's interesting that um, truth, uh, Satya, uh, generally, in um, in the the canon, uh, is it means honesty. I think the such a parameter is honesty, and the um, uh, the nature of sort of such a as a truth or as a sort of um, uh, an abstract quality is mostly found in the such a sanyuta, the connected discourses about the, the the truths, and so that there is a theories that are, are and the, I think the. If I remember correctly, there's something like 540 um, uses of the word satcha in the Pali Canon, and 480 of them are in the Satcha Sangyuta. So there's a, the, the vast majority only occur in that one particular collection of teachings. So, the, uh, so that uh, in the rest of the Canon, the, uh, the, the usage of the term is not so much as a satcha as an abstract quality of truth, sort of with a capital T, um, but rather it's referring to honesty, truthfulness, and, and not telling lies and such. Um, and so uh, one of the um, the theories rolling around that uh, Stephen Batchelor is very fond of is that um, the um, the Buddha didn't necessarily speak in terms of truth, capital T, as an abstract quality, but uh, that sort of came in later on when uh, when sort of, um, being aligned with other spiritual teachings and that um, the uh, Rather than the so the idea of an abstract sort of existential truth, uh, the emphasis on the the of this teaching of the Dhammachaka Sutta is more to do with the uh, working with the the mind. And so Stephen has this um, uh, proposition to say we should talk about them as the the four noble tasks rather than than truths. And and uh, he points to what uh, well, Venerable Analia will, will um, get to in a moment, and also that Dhumpa Sumedha would speak about, that it's, uh, within the Dhammachaka Sutta, each of the four truths has a particular way that it's to be worked with, or to be, to be developed, or to be handled. So 
the uh, first noble truth, dukkha, is to be understood, parinyayanti, to be apprehended or to, to be acknowledged. Uh, the cause of dukkha is to be uh, to be let go of, pahatavanti, uh, uh, to, to be abandoned, to be let go of. The third noble truth is to be realized, to be, um, to be fully known, satchikatavanti. And uh, the fourth truth, the, the Eightfold Path, is to be developed, Mapavetabhanti. So that the, uh, rather than the idea of a sort of, this is the truth, um, then uh, it's more, well, the, uh, the, these are the tasks that we uh, can profitably engage in, and that if they are engaged in, if dukkha is apprehended, if the origin is let go of, if the, the um, if cessation is realized, and if the path is developed, then... That will lead to the the um, complete uh, ending of, of dukkha. So then, uh, that's what, exactly what he gets onto in the next section here. Each of the four noble truths makes its own demand on the practitioner. Dukkha has to be understood, quote unquote. Its origination has to be abandoned, quote unquote. Its cessation has to be realized. Quote unquote, and the practical path to this realization has to be developed. Quote unquote. In particular, the five aggregates are to be understood. Ignorance and craving for existence are to be abandoned. Knowledge and freedom are to be realized. And calm, samatha, and insight, vipassana, are to be developed. And that little collection of um, injunctions is found in... Um, in the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, Connected Discourses, section 45, sutta number 159. It's a sutta called The Guest House. So that's a, a helpful little collection of, of principles. So the five aggregates are to be understood. Ignorance and craving for, ex uh, for existence are to be abandoned. Knowledge and freedom are to be realized. And calm and insight, samatha and vipassana, are to be developed. For the purpose of contemplation, anupasana, the dvayatana nupasana sutta, that means the two um, faculties for contemplation sutta, which is in the sutta nipata, that suggests that one may focus either on dukkha and its arising, or on its cessation and the path leading to its cessation. So the, the two elements, or the two ayatanas, the two um, uh, sort of focus, focuses you know, one would be look at dukkha and its arising, or the other dukkha on its cessation and the path leading to cessation. So either look at truths one and two as a as a pair, or look at truths three and four as a pair. This corresponds to the two-stage sequence found throughout the contemplation of dhammas. In each case, recognizing the presence or absence of a particular phenomenon includes directing mindfulness to the causes of its presence or absence. So, knowing dukkha means knowing the condition that leads to the arising of dukkha, and knowing the cessation of dukkha also involves knowing the condition that leads to the overcoming of dukkha, that is the Eightfold Path. Um, he doesn't um, uh, mention it here, but there's another very useful formulation of the Four Noble Truths that uh, Lumpur Dun, who's uh, one of the great uh, forest ajans of the current era, um, he uh, would speak about it in a slightly different way, so that 
he sort of rearranged the order so that rather than this, the, the illness and then the cause and then the prognosis and the treatment, he goes um, cause, illness, treatment, prognosis. <laughs> so, he's, uh, that, so that the go cause of dukkha, dukkha, uh, eightfold path, ending of dukkha, in, in the, his way of phrasing it. And then he put it into colloquial language, uh, or he did it in Thai rather than English, but he described them uh, in a quite a helpful way, which is um, so <clears throat> uh, the uh, the mind going out and getting lost in its moods is dukkha. Yeah. So uh, uh, hang on, a minute. Um, see, so, yeah. So that's the cause, and then the result. Uh, sorry, the, the mind going out and getting lost in its moods is the cause of dukkha, and the the result of having got lost in your moods is dukkha. The uh, the mind knowing the mind is the way to uh, get beyond dukkha, and the mind having known the mind leads to the ending of dukkha. So that <clears throat> the mind going out and getting lost in its moods that's the cause, and having got lost there is dukkha. <laughs> the the mind knowing the mind, seeing oh look my mind is getting lost in this this feeling of excitement or feeling of fear or feeling of insecurity or irritation but the mind knowing the mind is the the path and then the mind and the result of that uh, having known the mind having known the mind is brings about the ending of dukkha so that's a a, a, a helpful little reformulation so Lumpur Dun was a, a disciple of Ajahn Man and uh, also known as an uh, one of the arahants of the the, the current era It'll stay there happily until the. Yeah, if there's no urgency. You can sit down, be at peace. It won't go anywhere. It's not needed. Suffering can end without hankering and fretting in relationship to the world. So, any questions apart from whether I want the bookmark picked up? Yes, David. I might have got this wrong. Is there a word sukha, which is. Is there a word sukha which is like happiness? Yes. So how does that relate? If dukkha is also uneasiness with pleasantness and happiness, was sukha different to that? Is that beyond dukkha sukha, or is it just another way of describing the dukkha of pleasant things? Uh, well, sukha, yeah, it's only got one K, so it's not spelled quite the same way. But su and du are like a paired opposite. They're, they, you know, that like uh, uh, sumano means good mind, dumano means bad mind. Uh, you know, it's like su and du are like a, a, a opposite of each other. So they are closely related. And so sukha means happiness or contentment, ease. Um, but it's uh, uh, and the, and you do get it on some places where the Buddha says nibbana is the highest happiness. Is that the, the, the so you don't do it's a sukha, you don't do it's not related to. But it's usually the the it's rare that. The Buddha uses the word sukha as a as symbolic of anything that's that's transcendent. I mean, one or two places he says nibbana is the, is the highest happiness, but it's not particularly common. Um, so he more refers to qualities of peace or non-attachment rather than happiness. And like Ajahn Buddha Dasa would point out that um, yeah, happiness is very attractive, and then 
but people uh, they relate to uh, nibbana as being a kind of happy all the time. He says this is a real misunderstanding because it's it's not like you know, <laughs> oh what a lovely day. You know, it's not a kind of it's not a, what we generally think of as happiness. It's a much more profound quality. So he uh, so. And there's a, a lot of very useful teachings by Ajahn Buddha Dasu where he spells this out. So he says that the, the two kinds of happiness is the worldly kind of happiness that we generally relate to as getting what you want. But the, the real, the, the most profound kind of happiness or the, the real beneficial happiness is the happiness of, of not wanting anything. And so that, that uh, it's, a very, it's not a kind of gleeful you know, happiness, but it's a very cool kind of happiness. So the the uh, uh, they're not uh, uh, entirely uh, um, a pair. So like in the Four Noble Truths, you don't get the Buddha talking about sukha as the as the result of uh, of uh, of dukkha, but it just talks about dukkha niroda, like the cessation of dukkha. Just like uh, you know the 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 thing uh, things no, no longer being out of balance, and that uh, in a way the ex- the experience of things being balanced or being Peaceful, uh, are kind of, uh, they speak for themselves. Okay. Applied at a mundane level, contemplation of the Four Noble Truths can be directed to patterns of clinging, upadana, clinging to existence occurring in everyday life. As, for example, when one's expectations are frustrated, when one's position is threatened, or when things do not go as one would want, like with the wonky wheel on your cart, or somebody who works in your office um, keeps uh, moving your things, or they've taken your cheese from the fridge, yeah, or they uh, they they're the one who got the window, uh, the 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 desk by the window, uh, or any of the ten thousand squabbles and, and difficulties in family life and monastery life. <laughs> The task here is to acknowledge the underlying pattern of craving, tanha, that has led to the build-up of clinging and expectations, and also its resultant manifestation in some form of dukkha. This understanding in turn forms the necessary basis for letting go of craving, tanhaya patinisaga. With such letting go, clinging and dukkha can, at least momentarily, be overcome. Practiced in this way, one will become increasingly able to quote, fair evenly amidst the uneven. And that's a quote from the beginning of the Sanghita Nikaya. To fair evenly amongst the uneven, like to be balanced amidst the unbalanced, or to be sane amidst the craziness. Not only do the Four Noble Truths, listed as the final meditation practice in this Satipatthana, constitute the conclusion of this series of contemplations, they can also be related to each of the other contemplations of Dhammas. The commentaries go further by relating each of the meditation practices described throughout the Satipatthana Sutta to the scheme of the Four Noble Truths. In fact, the successful completion of any Satipatthana contemplation is the realization of Nibbana, which corresponds to knowing the Third Noble Truth as it really is. So that they that uh, relating to all of the different aspects of Satipatthana in terms of of dukkha, its cause, cessation, and the, and the path, as a framework for working with each of the, the Satipatthanas. It's also interesting that in in one particular sutta, um, the exp- uh, 
exposition of the elements, Sutta 140 uh, of the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha say, uh, says Nibbana is the, is the supreme noble truth. So there actually there's five noble truths. So it was the only, it's the only place where he says that. He says Nibbana is the supreme noble truth. So it's like the, uh, a different way of, of uh, handling that, relating to that. Yet a full understanding of the third noble truth implies a penetration of all four, since each one is but a different facet of the same central realization. Thus the four noble truths indeed form the culmination of any successful implementation of Satipatthana as the direct path to the realization of Nibbana. It's also it's interesting in that same sutta, the ex, uh, exposition of the elements, that uh, the, the Buddha says you know, Nibbana is the supreme noble truth, and he also he makes an interesting comment that uh, and it's the the uh, the nature of nibbana is that it is undeceptive. So that uh, it's a uh, uh, which is a, again a, a kind of unique statement that um, that's uh, the the quality of nibbana. So like when when the mind is fully at peace, it knows this is this is total peace. It, it kind of it's it's fully clear and it's a it's a quality that's undeceptive. It's not mistaken for anything else. This is how I, I read that particular passage. Any particular questions? Reflections? Yes? Like, uh, uh, one of my problems is like, uh, when, I, when I practice, like, uh, it's, it's, it has to be done by myself, not like uh, someone comes to me to point out my hindrance. It has to be done by myself, so I should be the one for my practice mainly. But the, but my problem is, like when I try when I'm trying to be aware of my feeling or like to be mindful, I used to like I tend to make lie like cover it. Not it's really difficult to be honest with how I feel right now. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I just cover it to make it look very nice, sugar-coated. Mm-hmm. So for me, like a... T- Join the club. <laughs> like, so so that not very often, but sometimes when I'm really honest with myself, I feel really... And I can learn about something deeper than before. But usually I make like, this is my like a major problem right now. So I like to ask you like uh, advice for how to be more honest with myself. It's really difficult. That's a good question. Uh, with this kind of uh, area, as with many things, I find the most helpful thing is just that reflection of I'm not being honest with myself here. Yeah. Well, well, uh, I really don't want this to be true, so I'm pretending that it's it's something else. That's what's happening here. So you you can't just snap your fingers and make it stop happening. But at least you can name that um, uh, I don't like to see this as laziness, but actually this is laziness. Or I don't like to see this as selfishness, but this is this this looks very like selfishness. <laughs> and just naming what's present. So the, because something is recognizing that dishonesty, and that which knows that dishonesty is not dishonest. So that that so at least recognizing oh look at that I really don't want that to be true so I'm pretending it's not. Okay, good luck. 
And then that simple process, I mean, it's simple, but it's, you have to be quick on your feet to sort of to, to catch what the mind is doing. That's the most helpful thing because it's, uh, you can't just make those habits stop as an act of will. You can't just, okay, I'll, I'll be completely honest about everything that's going on within me. You know, you, you're like you say, okay, from today I'm giving up anger. Okay, from now on, no more anger. Ha <laughs> 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 You know, you can make the statement, but it, you can't just, you, know, you, you can't make it happen. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be king of England. You can make that statement, but it's not going to happen. You know, it's just because the conditions for it are not right. You know, there's a few other people in line to the throne. And so that um, recognition of, of what is present uh, uh, is, a tr- is a very simple but very very powerful practice. This, and it, uh, in a way, just naming what's there but with as little commentary about it as possible, like, Rather than oh, uh, I really this is the um, uh, you know I'm not being honest about this um, this mind state and uh, and I hope nobody else finds out about it. That's what this feeling is. And then if you just leave it at that, it, it works most most beneficially. If the mind goes on, well, maybe I should do this with it. Maybe I should go and find somebody and I should talk about it with them. That then that gets more complicated. So the simpler it is, just naming, this is the I'm really attached to this issue, and I and I uh, and I'm trying to pretend that I'm not. That's what this feeling is, or I'm I just had a, a an extreme ex- feeling of jealousy, and and I and a good Buddhist wouldn't feel jealous like this. That's what this feeling is, <laughs> and then not not getting self-critical or planning what to do with it or. or uh, uh, justifying it, just simply naming what's there, and the, the more the more simple uh, the way the mind relates to it, then the more you're just in a sense allowing some space around that, and that giving a, the space around it helps the mind to recognize. Well, this is just another condition of nature. This is just a pattern of mind that we can experience. It, it's uh, is uh, it's felt here. But it's not who and what we are. So I, I use that kind of practice a lot. I don't know, I just read one of the talks from Paul. It's part of the uh, intuitive awareness book mm-hmm. about meta, actually, where he describes meta as the, the meta practice as. as Embracing what is, and mm. and brings it together with the pure knowing of, of Buddha, and it is a very interesting comparison where he says, you know, especially in monastic life in, in this tradition, we get all these yatanta um, and yatanman and very inspiring uh, uh, examples of teachers and stories, and and we are all excited. But then when we practice, we can't do it. And so he, he went into that and said, instead of pretending I can do it and not getting anywhere, he um, 
started to say these sentences to himself, I should be like Ajahn Man, or I should be like Ajahn Shah, or I should be perfect, I should, mm. uh, uh, I should be better. You know, mm -hmm. I, I shouldn't, um, I should overcome my, my defilements or my bad habits. And then observe, was observing what the sentence did to him, and he found that it brought him into a kind of childhood position of feeling guilty, feeling, uh, uh, in certain words he uses, I don't remember, disempowered basically, and um, ashamed. And, um, that was so difficult to, to acknowledge. So he just sat with it, but just repeating these sentences and really trying to be aware of what the feeling tone mm -hmm. was, which comes up, and also where in the body you could feel it. And then slowly could acknowledge that that he really felt ashamed, of, of, you know, that he didn't live up to what he thought he should. And then he realized that if he stays with awareness, without criticizing himself or analyzing it, then actually <coughs> it comes and it goes. <laughs> and then that was the end of suffering. Yeah. And so he, 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 at the end of the talk, he says something very interesting. He said, that's Bhavana. That's all you need to do. You need to trust and awareness. <laughs> that's the, the noble part. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he likes to to to, to put, put it often in the very in the very simple category, but it really touched something mm -hmm. in me. Um, yeah, not to make it complicated in this this this, but sometimes when we bring it back to to the essential way of practice. Yeah, very good, very good. That's a, because it's it's also those kind of kind of ways of reflecting can be really helpful because when you they they sort of hover around in the background uh, you know you're not as good as I you know you're not as good as Ajahn Chai you know you're you're you should be trying harder you know, you're really useless at that and you really shouldn't be that way you should be much better and then to when they're off in the wings they have great power and they 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 influence they seem so real and and inarguable when you get them front center and you say, "I'm not good enough," I should be, you know, unless I was as good as Ajahn Chah, then I'm a bad monk. You know? And when you, all those kind of things. So when you actually state them, at least internally, I find they they fall apart. They they can't they they can't hold together because they they um they're in a way they're they're more seen as sort of idealistic statements that doesn't have any particular bearing on reality and that they 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 lose their strength by being seen clearly and so again you're just letting there be a bit more space around them and that uh, when they are sort of front center and and uh, known directly they they uh, they come become kind of ridiculous often you can't you can't get to the end of the sentence before you start laughing or it seems like i should be better <laughs> and so, so it's like and yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. 
It's like uh, uh, I, what also comes to mind is when, when uh, many years ago, um, this one very um, serious uh, young uh, student came to visit, uh, and uh, I, he was talking with uh, Ajahn Viridamo, and uh, he, was, he was receiving this like a student group. Um, and this young fellow was very uh, anti-monasticism and thought, uh, he said, yeah, if everybody was monks and nuns, yeah, what would happen to the gross national product? <laughs> yeah, if everybody became a monk and a nun, yeah, who would feed you? And what would happen to the gross national product? And you know, if, if that happened, what would you do? And Ajahn V said, just sort of looked at him and said, and if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bus. <laughs> it's like, it's completely ridiculous, but I don't know where it came from in his mind. Maybe it's an old Latvian expression. But if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bus. It's like it's totally ridiculous, because like yeah, you, so that the most uh, self-centered, coarse, and violent person in the world wants to become a Buddhist nun or a Buddhist monk. Yeah, that's going to happen, isn't it? And that you know, by the time the, the old seven billion people on the planet wanted to keep the first precepts, let alone the, you know, the, the other uh, eight precepts. Uh, the humanity would have transformed so far beyond all recognition that we wouldn't be able to you know, conceive what, what the world would be like. So it's, a, it's the perfect answer. It's like, but then that's often how we are, we're sort of relating to our own mind with that sort of same kind of, you know, you're a bad monk, you shouldn't do this, and you're really awful, and you know, what if they find out how bad you are, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> then um, you're... Again, it's, it's, it's an infantile mind state. But, of, but there's this strange chemistry whereby sometimes we actually like that in a mysterious way. Because it's what we kind of got used to earlier on. It's like, you know, bad boy, you know, go to your room. And like... Even though it's a horrible experience, it's a solid. It's a kind of powerful experience, and so sometimes we we create the conditions to get into that. Oh, I'm going to be sorry. Uh, yeah, and it's it's completely non-rational, but we we kind of sometimes we make situations whereby we feel that that kind of oppressed and insecure and and uh, stressed state because it's the devil that we know. And sometimes that we, when things are going really well and everybody loves us and the practice is really smooth, we we, we something comes along to kind of to scrap it to stick a spoke in the wheel so that we don't know what to do with everything going well, you know. If I'm not a failure, what what, what and and getting it all wrong, what oh what do I do? <laughs> and so we. It's a kind of self-sabotaging uh, habit. Well, um, I must say, I reflected on that a lot because, you know, when I was thinking about my brother who ended up in a state, I can't do anything, you know, I'm not able to do what I'm supposed to do. So he was so shamed to the bones that he really lost uh, the ability to make an effort. So he just got stuck in this, I'm, I'm not good enough, I'm, I'm a failure. And um, whereas I, I mean, I got the same education in a way, but uh, seeing him and seeing that this is not the way out, 
I started to fight. <laughs> I, I can do it, which is not the end of suffering. It's yeah. just another way, but yeah. it looks better in our society. <laughs> so for me, it's more really uh, to get off the trip of I can do everything. Say that again. Get off the trip. I can. I can do it. Oh yeah. Because that that is is just uh, missing the reality of what is really there. So to acknowledge the the uh, limitations. Limitations, or, or what really is that? Mm. That that I do feel ashamed that I can't. You know, my meditation isn't going in. So at the core, there's an ashamedness, and and on top of it, this is oh, I'm I'm. Just read the right thing, just read, you know, and then I get inspired. My meditation doesn't get necessarily better. Or if I really, really strive, but I can't sustain it. So I, I really need to go more to the place where I just bear with it. And then, mm-hmm. surprise, surprise. You know. Then suddenly, it's all there. But it doesn't come naturally to me. It's, it's uh, Well, that's why we, we practice. <laughs> And also, it's part of the benefits of uh, Karyanamita, like living together and practicing as a as a group, because then we get you can get a perspective on those same kind of habits, and uh, and also be able to to see how you relate to different mind states and situations, and how others around you relate in, in different ways. So we there's a tremendous support that comes from from living in contact with other practitioners and and. Uh, to to get that kind of perspective that you know like you were you were quoting from that teaching of Lumpur Sumato that um, that and just uh, the encouragement to to uh, uh, be patient and be be uh, uh, aware of what you're experiencing and to to just stay with it and then to to trust the quality of, of awareness that yeah you can know your limitations you can know uh, so you can acknowledge your abilities. Yeah, but without creating self-criticism or pride, but just saying, "Oh, this is, this is the the way things are," and then uh, there's a, a a freedom that comes from that. Okay, that's enough for today. I think. <laughs>